Hey, welcome to Bedside Matters. This is the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact all of us every single day. We're hopefully going to give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. And to do that, of course, is Dr. David Kipper. Hi, David. Hi, Peter. Hi, Anna. You good? Anna Bocino is with us. Hi, Anna. Hi. Thanks for having me. Well, we had no option. But anyway, <laughs> you're part That's of the show, true. of course. Of course, you're part of the show. So what's on today's show? Today, we're going to be covering headaches versus migraines, a distinction I've never understood, but Kipper's going to clear it up for us. Also, there's new information about the effectiveness of colonoscopies. And because of this new information, I know David wants to talk about the confusion. There's a lot of misinformation out there. I want to know what tests work. In our This Just Happened segment, Dr. Kipper's going to tell us about how marijuana use may actually increase the risk of atrial fibrillation. And we have a caller today who's going to talk about cholesterol. He's 30 years old. He was just diagnosed with high cholesterol, which fits this story about 25 to 34-year-olds having high cholesterol problems now. And I want to find out why that is. So David, why don't we start with the migraines and headaches and the differences and the treatments, et cetera? So not all headaches are created equal, and not all headaches are migraine headaches. There are tension headaches that happen when people are highly stressed. There are sinus headaches when people have an infection in their sinuses. There are cluster headaches, which are headaches that you can get. Generally, they're on one side of the body. They're vascular spasms. You can have several of these over a couple-week period of time. And then there are the conventional migraine headaches, and migraine headaches are vascular headaches. And what I mean by that is that the blood vessels in the brain spasm, and that spasming of the blood vessels creates several of the symptoms, including the pain. There are pain fibers that wrap around the blood vessels. And sticking with migraines, have either one of you had a migraine headache? I believe I've had a couple in my lifetime. But maybe they were cluster headaches and not migraines, because I never threw up. Isn't nausea a symptom? I felt nauseous, but I didn't throw up. You can have nausea with almost any headache, but with migraines, you're going to get nauseated, and usually you're going to throw up. So, Anna, tell me if any of this resonates. Okay. No, I'm listening intently, because now I'm thinking it was cluster headache, but go ahead. There's four different phases of a migraine. There's that first phase, which is the prodrome that can last for a couple days, and it actually has nothing to do with a headache. People are feeling depressed, they're bloated, they're retaining water, they're having systemic symptoms that are not related to the headache. Then comes the aura, which can last for usually a day, sometimes a little bit longer, and that's where you get light sensitivity, you start seeing flashing lights, a field of your vision might go out that's predictive of a headache that's about to happen. So migraine sufferers know exactly what this is. Did you have an aura with your headache? Yeah. Well, I just wanted to be in a dark room and I wasn't hungover. You know what I mean? Like I was like, something's wrong. I've never had this instinct to want to be in a dark room. So I was like, oh, I wonder if this is a migraine. You know, I have celiac and they say one of the top symptoms of celiac is, is migraines. And I never really got the whole migraine thing. So the one time that I think that, or the two times I think I had it, these things happened. I was like, and it wasn't because of like gluten exposure or anything, but I, it was very strange to me. And it made my heart go out to everybody who has to deal with them. Listening to this is weird. I, I haven't thought of this forever. My mom used to lock herself in the bedroom and get migraines, really bad migraines. And I never got, I don't think I've ever gotten one. And I mean, she'd be in the bedroom and the door was closed and the lights off. And like a towel in her eyes and the, I mean, really suffering from this stuff. And I don't know back 
60s, 70s, early whatever, what they did for treatment. But I would think there's a genetic component, but I've never really had, I've had bad headaches occasionally, but in my entire lifetime, I can count the number of headaches I've had on one hand. And these are the headaches that you remember. And Peter, you're right, there is a genetic component. Getting into the third phase of the migraine problem, you get the attack phase. That's when the throbbing starts. And that comes from this vascular spasm that you get. And the blood vessels, because they're unstable and they create an irritation to these pain pathways, that's the pain or the headache and the nausea and the vomiting. And then there's the post-dromal phase when the headache is actually over with. And people are actually the opposite at that point. First of all, they're fatigued from going through this headache, but they also feel a sense of elation because the headache is over with. So if you have that series uh, or connection of events, you're looking at a migraine. And there's a genetic component, as Peter said. The ages are usually 20 to 50. That's when we see most migraines. Women are far more likely to get a migraine than men's, probably three times more likely. And triggers can be anything from stress to changes in the weather, hormones. Women get this uh, typically at their menstruation and at their ovulation. So twice a month, they're susceptible as the estrogen levels change. Alcohol can do this. Sleep deprivation can do this. So there are a lot of triggers, but your triggers will be the same triggers. So you'll know these things are coming. The treatment, Peter, to your point about your mom and back then, there were no great treatments. They gave painkillers, they gave benzos. In the last 20 years, we've been giving things like tryptans, tryptan medicines are like Imitrex and Zomig. And these are drugs that actually take the spasm, they constrict the blood vessel. So the blood vessel is no longer spasming, it's in a constricted phase. However, when the drug wears off, the spasm comes back. So these drugs are very temporary. The good news is that as of a couple of years ago, we now have a perfect medicine for this. And they figured out that in order to get this vascular spasm going, there has to be a series of peptides and proteins that get put together, much like you're baking a cake. And by taking out one of these proteins, you abort the whole process. They can't make the cake. They can't make these blood vessels spasm. And there are three of these products that are out now. And if you are a migraine sufferer, please ask your doctor about these because they can be used short-term to abort a headache and they can be long-term therapies to prevent a headache, especially if you're getting a lot of these. There's Nurtec, there's Herbelvery and Emalgadi. And these older drugs just have now gone by the wayside. You mentioned auras. How do you know when you get an aura? Because I know a family member with epilepsy. Auras also can be epilepsy, sign of epilepsy. How do you, and it's just flashing lights. It's no different than when you explain. How can you demarcate the difference between that's happening or I'm getting an aura with a migraine? Well, the aura for a migraine will be repetitive. It will be the same aura that you get. You will get flashing lights every time. You will get a visual defect. Some people get it's sensory issues. So some people actually smell things right before their headache. With respect to a seizure, that's a slightly different set of auras, but the migraine is repetitive and predictable. Got it. Colonoscopy, a new study just came out that revealed there was a smaller benefit from screening than they anticipated. And that from that came all these news stories about you don't need a colonoscopy. You can have one of the ones that are um, give a stool sample, blood sample, whatever, 
why do something invasive? I was all proud of my colonoscopy. So p- please reinforce my decision to get a colonoscopy at a younger age than recommended. You also, by the way, don't get a movie with the others, right? You, you get a, actually a filmed event with the colonoscopy. I was awake and watched him and asked him questions about it. You were totally awake? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I was fascinated by it. I wanted, I wanted to see what was doing in there. Well, this study came from Europe. This was in the Norway, Sweden, Excuse me Denmark. For I just got to get this out of my system. The way that she described her colonoscopy sounds like the movie with the cave rescue. I mean, that's how... Like I got to see what's doing in there. Kids out. Like a lot of activity back there. So I, I'm sorry. It just I got this horrible visual. It said I Dr. Kipper's trying to tell us very important I know, information, I know, but Peter. how interesting is it to watch? I'm sorry. Anna. I thought it was fascinating. Was this an insurance issue that you weren't offered the anesthesia? Not at all. Not at all. I have the Screen Actors Guild insurance. It's very good insurance. They would want me to defend their insurance plan. What happened was they wanted to give me something that I had had a bad reaction to in the past. And so I was like, just give me a half of whatever that Michael Jackson drug was, the propanopol, whatever it is. I don't know what it is. Just give me a little bit of that. And they were like, okay, because they did an endoscopy and, and I was... I obviously can't talk for that one, but I was watching the thing and then they did the colonoscopy right afterwards. And I was like, because here's the thing, I'm fascinated by it and I should have been a doctor, right? So I I was watching it and asking him because you know how the vegans always say like, uh, or there's like, like I don't want to assign this to the vegans because you know we love our vegan friends, but there's been this lore of like, there's 10 pounds of undigested meat in your gut if you eat meat. I know that that's physically not possible, but in your mind, you're like, is it? So I, I wanted to see the colonoscopy. Once you do the whole thing, the prep, you're clean as a whistle unless there's something doing down there. And it was clean as could be. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting to see. The body really is a self-cleaning mechanism. It cleans it out. Did any of the people in this room say to you, Anna, we could actually give you the propofol and you can watch the movie when you wake up? Did you get that option? No, no. The other thing, David, is they charge her for theater seating in that room. It's really weird. It was it was a special room. I had to bit. pay box seats price. <laughs> well, this changes my entire opinion of you, and I think for the better, actually. To get back to what normal people do with their colonoscopies, the study, as I said, was done out of the Scandinavian countries, and they gave people an option of either having a screening colonoscopy or not, and then they looked to see Were the rates of detection the same and was the mortality ultimately the same? And they came out with data saying that they were really no different. When you look at this study, however, the study was extremely flawed. They didn't carry these people out long enough to see if, in fact, they did die uh, of colon cancer. And there was some issue with respect to the skill of the colonoscoper because there is a skill in this. We have these things called flat polyps that aren't just the things we think about as polyps that are these little dangling things. A flat polyp is literally flat to the surface of the intestine. And you have to be very well trained and you have to see these things on the way out, not on the way in of the scope. So there were a lot of flaws in this study. And the reality is that detection and mortality statistics are 30% better when you do a colonoscopy. And the colonoscopies are important if you have a family history, if you have some rectal bleeding or a change in your bowel habit, you want the colonoscopy. There are other things that you can do to look for colon cancer. There's a FIT test where they do an antibody test against 
the blood in the stool. If there's blood in your stool, you might assume there's a polyp that's bleeding or a cancer that's bleeding. These are simple tests. You can do this at home. You take a little swab of your poop and you put it on a little card. You mail it to the doctor. We put a staining solution on it. If it turns blue, there's blood in there. And then you get a call from the doctor saying you're getting a colonoscopy. There's a DNA test that is more sensitive. It's more expensive. It's more sensitive. You don't need a clean out. By the way, you don't need a clean out for the fit test. You don't need a clean out for the DNA test. And the DNA test, your doctor orders this test for you. The UPS driver brings you a box. It's got like a soccer ball in it. In there is a toilet liner, a cup, and a little dilutant solution. You set everything up, you poop in the cup, you put the dilutant in, you screw the thing back on the jar, you call the UPS driver to come pick it up, and in about two weeks, you get a notice whether there is a polyp or a cancer, and they're about 90% effective. So uh, there are some false positives to this, but it's a pretty good test. It costs $600. And then uh, you have a virtual colonoscopy, which I think, Peter, was you were referring to, where you lay on a scanner and you get a picture of your colon. You do have to clean out like you would for a colonoscopy. This thing is not as sensitive as a colonoscopy, but the worst part is, is if they find anything suspicious, you just bought yourself a colonoscopy. And I mean literally because your insurance companies will pay for one of these two tests. So if you decide to do the virtual and you are in trouble from that, you then have to you have to buy a colonoscopy. So which is which is expensive by the way if you do pay out of pocket for a colonoscopy. There it's around $10,000. Getting to marijuana and atrial fibrillation. This was a, <gasps> this is a kind of a, a nerve-wracking one for me. Because I smoked a lot. I smoke a lot to go to bed. A lot of people, I mean, the floodgates have opened as far as marijuana, David. And you look at, I look at long-term effects of marijuana and, and the symptoms it can cause. And then you add to this atrial fibrillation. And I know this is one of those stories also that it's not a cause and effect necessarily, correct? Correct. But there's a relationship there. So why don't you tell us about the atrial fibrillation part of it? So this was an interesting study that UC San Francisco did. They took 23 million people over a 10-year period. So it was a well-documented study. And what they found was that there was a higher likelihood of people that were smoking marijuana getting atrial fibrillation. Here's what's interesting about this, if you think about it. The demographic for people that are smoking marijuana is anybody, and especially people over 50. And the demographic for people getting atrial fibrillation is usually above 50. So you're looking at the same demographic. So to Peter's point, this is more of an association than a cause and effect. In fact, there's never been a study that showed that marijuana can create dangerous arrhythmias. So this study was also flawed a little bit. But they have shown a similar association with cocaine, methamphetamine, and opiates. So other drugs can do this. We know alcohol can do this. People that are predisposed to atrial fibrillation, they get sauced and their fibrillation acts up. I have a friend who's a comic and he, while he was at Harvard Law School, super stoned, developed a fibrillation. And he didn't know it. They rushed him to the hospital. He, it was like one of those things where, and he talks about this in his standup, but he's, is one of those things where he thought 
that he was so high that, you know, when you're, you think you're dying, but then they were like, no, you're actually dying. They had to call the paramedics. And it turns out he had AFib and he was young, like 28 to 32 in that age range when this happened. And so when I read that we were going to talk about this from Peter's email, I was like, oh no, I can't tell my friend John this. I'll be really upset. But you're saying there's actually, it's just associated. It's not caused by it. Yes. And I think for the listener, because we hear these words atrial fibrillation a lot, what this means in English is that the heart, as we know, has arteries. That's what happens when you have a heart attack. One of those goes sour. But we also have an electrical system in the heart that starts at the top of the little chamber on top, the atrium. It goes through the atrium and then down to the ventricle, the big pumping area. Atrial fibrillation is a malfeasance, if you will, of the electrical system in the atrium. So it's in that top chamber. And if that is not sending the right messages to the ventricle underneath, which has to pump all that blood into the aorta, then there's a problem with your circulation. What's very interesting about the heart, the heart muscle is different than any other muscle in the body in that the heart muscle has its own intrinsic electrical activity. So the cells in the heart can actually generate an electrical response, which is the backup system for the heart. So in case you have an arrhythmia, those cells can come in and save the day. Doesn't work. It's a great idea, but it just doesn't work. So when you have atrial fibrillation, something is irritating front part or the top part of that electrical system. Can I ask you real, real quickly, David, an article today I grabbed, cannabis use increases pain after surgery, that it seems like if you're on, and that may be a receptive thing, didn't get deep into that story. But then you look up weed and long-term marijuana use can be memory issues, anxiety, depression, lung damage, and also greater risk for heart attack, disease, and stroke. So the long-term use thing, because people think it's all natural and it's not unhealthy for you, or is this also maybe not related? I think it's more of an association because none of these things that you've just mentioned have been proven in well-vetted studies. So it's like one of those things that they can't prove it's the marijuana that caused the thing because they might it might be other factors. Is that well, what you no mean? there's no control group. You don't know if somebody has anxiety is doing marijuana because they have anxiety and yeah. they're attributing the anxiety to long-term marijuana and you don't know their predisposition. So it's hard. How do you test for that? An analogy would be like people that wear hearing aids are more likely to get dementia. Well, people that are wearing hearing aids are generally older, and older people get dementia. So this is where this all breaks down. And we actually had an entire course in medical school about deciphering these articles and these studies. At the time, we thought it was just a nice, easy class amongst many others that weren't so easy. But the reality is we use that information to interpret these studies. Well, I wish that the a lot of the press who reports on these studies would take that class because they grab a lot of these studies and then I go I like to read them and I I don't understand half of them, but I do like try to try to read them and I look at them and I'm like, "Wait a minute, this doesn't add up." And then I get confused. But you know what's interesting too and I just did some research on this for another project that just as the media is looking for attention grabbers in our general news They've sensationalized everything as everything, and the scientific community and David can can agree with this or disagree. They push it a little bit too because it has to do with funding, it has to do with competition research, it has to do with grants, it has to do. So it's not bad for them to kind of put it out in a way that grabs some attention and grabs some headlines, and then buried in it, you see that it can be association. So we're in a world now of 
grabbing attention. And I think in the science world, they're doing that more and more. Do you agree with that, David? Yes. And also, if you think about this particular subject matter, marijuana periodically becomes a hot topic. And recently, the president decided to be more lenient with those people that were uh, incarcerated for marijuana, minor issues. So that has stirred a little bit of this controversy. Yeah, you're right. So it's out there in a big way. Hey, we have your question for you today. Hey, what about me segment? Give a listen, David. Hi, Dr. Kipper. My name is Steve. I'm in my 30s and I recently took a blood test and my doctor told me that I have high cholesterol. Do I need to be put on any medication? Steve, this is a question that I get regularly in my office. First of all, cholesterol is only a problem if you have heart disease. So the first thing you have to determine is whether or not you have heart disease. So how do you do that? We start forming cholesterol in, as young children. We start forming our levels of cholesterol. They're genetically predetermined. And there's only one condition in childhood that's called familial hypercholesterolemia, where it's a hereditary, not so uncommon illness where little kids have very high cholesterol levels up into the 400 areas and triglycerides into the 1000 areas. So these are kids that can't process their lipids. So these kids need to have some attention, and there are a number of different things that we do based on their age. If they're under 10, we do lifestyle adjustments. If they're over 10, we add in some medication. And the medications are the same as what we use in adults. But getting to a 30-year-old and this younger demographic now that are coming in with high cholesterol concerns, If you have a family history, someone died of a heart attack in your family, somebody died early of a heart attack in your family, you are at risk. We start forming these elevated cholesterols early on, but we don't start putting plaque into these arteries, usually until we're in our 40s or mid 40s. So you're not really going to know if you are at risk until you're able to study your heart arteries. There's a simple test for this. It's been around 40 years. It's a calcium coronary study. There's a scanner that you sit under for six minutes. You don't get naked. You don't get stuck with a needle. You're off the table in six minutes. And what it does is that it measures calcium in your three coronary arteries. If there's no calcium, you can assume that you're not forming plaque because cholesterol plaque, after 18 months being in that artery, scars down and calcifies. So when we see the calcium, we know there's plaque. And those are the people that we start treating. And the number that we look at, Steve, is the LDL, the bad cholesterol. And the bad cholesterol, the target for that number is under 50 now. So we need to reduce that number under 50. We do that by giving statin drugs. We have other drugs like Zetia that complexes the cholesterol in the intestine and doesn't let it get absorbed and sends it out to poop shoot. We have injectables that interrupt the formation of cholesterol molecules. These are shots that you can do twice a month, once a month. There's a new one that came out very recently where you can do a shot every six months. It's very easy for people that are not so compliant. What about naturally? The other part of his question was, is there any way to take cholesterol down without having to do statins or is it almost an impossibility? You can't take it down too much. No, you you can bring it down. But remember, these are genetically determined. So your diet is important to some degree. But natural things are things like more fiber, less saturated fats, 
all the things that we know, the Mediterranean diet is a good diet, more exercise. Exercise actually can help reduce cholesterol, believe it or not. It also helps build more blood vessels in the heart and in the lungs. So that's, there's another advantage. Can a kid, if you're listening to your kid now, get your parents to eat oatmeal and work out? I mean, hey, hello, you're my genetics. You got to go a little further back in uh, your parents. My that, so it doesn't matter. That ship has sailed, right? Pretty much. But also, if in fact, Steve, you do have coronary disease and you can start getting this test in about 10 years and you intervene early, you're going to prevent most likely you're getting a heart attack because you're going to keep this cholesterol burden way down. We're going to be looking at other things too. There's an inflammatory component that we think is the genetic part of coronary disease, that there's inflammation in these arteries because the cholesterol has to stick onto something. And if you have a blood vessel that isn't inflamed, that cholesterol is just going to pass on through. If there's inflammation for a number of other reasons. Is that the homocysteine or CRP that they say to check those numbers? You're so smart. Absolutely. Because I've been through this whole thing. I, I did the, the CAC score test because I got high cholesterol, but low triglycerides. And so I did it and the score was zero. And But now I have to go back because it's been a few years and it's time to go back and do it. So I don't know if it's going to be zero. I'll reveal on this podcast what it is and if I've screwed up too much. But you eat healthy. You change your diet. You're really careful because of your celiac, the whole bit. Well, I mean, yeah, but what if I'm wrong? Because just now, Kipper said, don't have saturated fat. I have a lot of saturated fat because I don't have any carbs. So maybe that's been a mistake. You know what I mean? Maybe that's, I don't know. I'll find out. There's another nuance for women, and that is menopause. While oh. you are making estrogen, you're keeping your arteries pretty clean. As soon as you hit your menopause and your estrogen levels drop, now you're vulnerable. So we generally don't even test women until their menopause with these scans. So if you had a zero before you were through your menopause, you might want to retest. Did you see how I turned Steve's question into something all about me? You too can ask Dr. Kipper a question and get it answered. All you have to do is go to bedsidematters.org, fill out the questionnaire, or leave us a message or write us a card and letter. We'll be happy to answer your question. And by we, I mean the doctor. David, thank you. Anna, thank you. Laurie, thank, thank you. you. By the way, over, override is out. Now, David, the coolest thing about reading the description of the book this is my favorite thing is that your brain runs you and this book actually tells you how to change your behavior that's out now and also anna eat happy and eat happy too which is all about gluten-free grain-free low-carb recipes here's the one that made me laugh out loud that i have to the pork oh, rind no. pizza crust where do, how do you come up with pork rind pizza crust listen in the low-carb community there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes down so I have an almond flour pizza crust, a cauliflower pizza crust, and a pork rind pizza crust. And all of it came about because somebody said, oh, my kid's allergic to almonds. And by the way, if you want to get me to write a recipe, tell me your kid's allergic to something and I'll write you something because that is always my soft spot. So pork rinds and cheese and eggs make a pizza crust. Go and it looks that. really good. So check it out. Go to her website. We'll see you guys next time on Bedside Matters. If you have a question for Dr. Kipper, you can go to our website, bedsidematters.org, and leave a voicemail or submit a question. The information on Bedside Matters and the resources available for download are not intended as and should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. 
The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.